You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 228 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, so far in this story arc, over the last couple of episodes, we've looked at Abraham Lincoln's decision in November 1862 to finally sack Major General George McClellan and to replace Little Mac by elevating 9th Corps Commander Ambrose Burnside to command the Army of the Potomac. We said that Burnside only reluctantly accepted command of the army. He had already turned down the offer at least once before because he didn't feel confident in his own abilities and because it would be awkward personally for him to supersede McClellan. But now Burnside was told in no uncertain terms that little Mac was out. There was no getting around that and that if he, Burnside, didn't accept the offer of command, then the army would be given to Joseph Hooker. Now, you need to understand that there were very few people that the good-natured Burnside downright disliked, but fighting Joe Hooker was one of them. And so rather than see Hooker put in charge, Ambrose Burnside reluctantly accepted command of the Army of the Potomac. Remember, we said that in addition to replacing McClellan with Burnside in the east, Lincoln had also made a significant command change in the Western Theater. A week before Little Mac's removal, the president relieved Don Carlos Buell of his command of the Army of the Ohio. Buell, as a general, was cut too much from the same cloth as McClellan to suit Abraham Lincoln. And so the president replaced Buell with Major General William Rosecrans, whose stock had risen considerably after his victory at Corinth in northern Mississippi. It's very important to realize that Lincoln made these significant command changes in both the eastern and western theaters in the fall of 1862 because he hoped, he anticipated, he expected that these changes would lead to major Union military victories before the end of the year. And for political reasons, Abraham Lincoln needed some major military victories, and he needed them sooner rather than later. That's because in the recent midterm elections throughout the North, the Republicans had done well enough, but they had still suffered some substantial losses, mainly due to the lukewarm, if not outright negative, reception of Lincoln's emancipation policy by many people in the North. 
As y'all recall, Lincoln had issued his preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in September in the wake of the Battle of Antietam, but adding emancipation as a war aim was not universally popular throughout the North, and many voters had shown their displeasure with the new policy by voting Democratic in the fall elections. With the final proclamation set to go into effect on January 1, 1863, Lincoln hoped to sustain emancipation as a war aim by gaining major military victories in both theaters of the war before the end of the year. In spite of the recent electoral backlash, emancipation was now a key war-winning policy of the Lincoln administration, and the president wouldn't turn back from that course of action. In his annual message to Congress in December, Lincoln reasoned, quote, In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free. He also noted, quote, Without slavery, the rebellion could never have existed. Without slavery, it could not continue. And so, with emancipation firmly fixed as a war aim, Abraham Lincoln made major command changes in the East and the West in the hope that the shakeups would lead to major Union military successes before the end of the year. From a political standpoint, Lincoln needed the federal armies to win substantial victories before winter set in, to give teeth to the enforcement of the final Emancipation Proclamation. So, you know, no pressure, but to sustain emancipation as a war aim, as 1862 drew to a close, a lot of attention was going to be given to Ambrose Burnside and the Army of the Potomac and their operations against the Confederates in Virginia. Abraham Lincoln was worried that the northern people had still not made up their minds that the war was in earnest. In early November, he told some visitors to the White House, quote, They have got the idea into their heads that we are going to get out of this fix somehow by strategy, end quote. Lincoln continued saying, quote, General McClellan thinks he is going to whip the rebels by strategy, and the army has got the same notion. They have no idea that the war is to be carried on and put through by hard, tough fighting, and no headway is going to be made while this delusion lasts, end quote. We mentioned before that when Burnside was offered command of the Army of the Potomac, he was handed an envelope that contained two orders, one from Lincoln appointing him to command, and the second from General-in-Chief Henry Halleck with the instructions, quote, Immediately on assuming command of the Army of the Potomac, you will report the position of your troops and what you propose doing with them, end quote. And so, right from the get-go, Ambrose Burnside understood what was expected of him. As that Lincoln quote that Tracy just read shows, the President's expectation was that the new commander of the Army of the Potomac would hop to it and do some hard, tough fighting. This meant that the Civil War was going to enter a unique new phase in the fall of 1862. Lincoln's need for a military victory meant the Army of the Potomac would undertake an unprecedented winter campaign. 
You see, typically, 19th century armies rested and refitted during the months of bad weather throughout the winter, and went out marching and campaigning during the spring and summer. Setting out on a winter campaign would be difficult enough for any general, especially one who had just assumed command of an army in the field. But Burnside was also handicapped by his own doubts about his abilities. Burnside's honest humility stood in striking contrast to McClellan's hubris and Hooker's relentless self-promotion. But genuine modesty was probably Ambrose Burnside's worst failing. From the moment he assumed command, he had trouble sleeping and kept telling anyone who would listen that he wasn't the man for the job. Abraham Lincoln probably should have been more careful about appointing a general who had repeatedly expressed sincere doubts about his own capabilities. Reflecting upon the command change, Colonel Robert Scales of the 11th New Jersey said, "Burnside is a good man, but he is to be tried on a large scale. If he fails, the results will be disastrous." But Lincoln did offer the command to Burnside, and Burnside accepted. And both president and general realized what was expected was an immediate advance against the Confederates. To his credit, on November ninth, two days after he accepted command of the army, Burnside responded to Halleck's firm request for a new campaign plan. When McClellan had finally moved south, he'd planned to follow the line of the rickety single track. Orange and Alexandria Railroad toward Culpeper. Abraham Lincoln had been watching Little Mac's plotting advance closely, and when the Confederates easily reached Culpeper ahead of the Army of the Potomac, well, that was the last straw for Lincoln, and he relieved McClellan. Now Burnside proposed fainting toward Culpeper. That is continuing to act as if the army was going to advance down the or- Orange and Alexandria toward the important rail junction at Gordonsville, but while the rebels were focused on that danger, Burnside would be shifting the Army of the Potomac rapidly eastward to Fredericksburg. If you want to be able to better understand all of this by being able to picture where Culpeper and Gordonsville and Fredericksburg are located in relation to each other, then we'll recommend once again that you pick up a Civil War atlas. As we've said before, the one that we pull down off the bookshelf most often is Echoes of Glory: The Illustrated Atlas of the Civil War by Time Life. Yep,、um, that particular atlas is long out of print. But it is our favorite, and practically new used copies are available for really reasonable prices on the internet. You know, at places like Amazon.com. Anyway, even without a map in front of you, here's what you need to know about Fredericksburg. It's situated on the right bank of the Rappahannock River, which flows from west to east, and Fredericksburg is pretty much midway. On the most direct route between Washington D.C. and Richmond, Virginia, it's about 50 miles south of Washington, and around 60 miles north of Richmond. 
Burnside wanted to shift to Fredericksburg because such a move would not only place the Army of the Potomac on a more direct route to Richmond, but by using Fredericksburg as its new base of operations, the Army would be able to use the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad as a more secure, reliable supply line. And so, in response to the expectations of an immediate advance by the Army of the Potomac, Burnside, on November 9th, forwarded a plan to Washington, which, if it succeeded, would result in the fall of the Confederate capital. You see, Burnside aimed to shift rapidly eastward, cross the Rappahannock, seize Fredericksburg before the Confederates could block him, then move south and capture Richmond. He explained how, quote, In moving by way of Fredericksburg, we will all the time be on the shortest route to Richmond, the taking of which, I think, should be the great object of the campaign, as the fall of that place would tend to more cripple the rebel cause than almost any other military event, except the absolute breaking up of their army. End quote. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. After receiving Burnside's proposal, Henry Halleck requested a meeting, and on November 12th, he traveled to Burnside's headquarters, along with Montgomery Miggs, the Army's chief quartermaster, and Herman Hopped, superintendent of military railroads. At the meeting, Burnside again reiterated his belief that he was unfit for Army command. But Halleck had little patience for such talk, and he quickly moved the discussion on to the details of Burnside's plan. Burnside explained the advantages of shifting the army to Fredericksburg, but Halleck urged sticking with the line of advance down the Orange and Alexandria Railroad toward Gordonsville. Burnside, though, refused to be put off, and to Halleck's irritation, hopped sided with the Fredericksburg plan 
saying that the army could be supplied more easily along that route. As general-in-chief, Halleck perfected the art of evading responsibility. He hated making decisions and seldom provided the kind of clear, detailed advice that Lincoln or the army commanders needed. Here, Halleck stated his opinion but refused to officially overrule Burnside. Instead, he said that he would would return to Washington and talk with the president. Back in Washington, Lincoln was skeptical. He didn't agree with Burnside's stated notion that the city of Richmond should be, quote, the great object of the campaign. The president had tried for months to get McClellan to close with and fight it out with Robert E. Lee, insisting that destroying the Confederate army, not capturing the rebel capital of Richmond, was the Army of the Potomac's true objective. But now, here was Burnside, proposing to swing around the enemy army and strike for Richmond. In the end, despite his misgivings about the proposal, Lincoln hesitated to show a lack of confidence in his new commander. So on the morning of November 14th, Halleck telegraphed Burnside, saying, The President has just assented to your plan. He thinks it will succeed if you move rapidly. Otherwise, not. That terse and lukewarm response from Washington hinted at trouble in the future, but Burnside forged ahead with his plans, including the reorganization of the Army of the Potomac into three wings, which were labeled Grand Divisions. The right Grand Division consisted of the 2nd and 9th Corps and would be commanded by Major General Edwin Sumner. At 65 years old, Sumner was the oldest senior commander in the Army of the Potomac. He was known as Bull for his booming voice as well as for his sheer stubbornness in battle. Behind his back, he was also known as Bullhead because of an old army tale about a Mexican musket ball that once bounced off his thick skull. Commanding the Second Corps under Sumner would be Darius Couch, while Orlando Wilcox would lead the Ninth Corps. The left Grand Division was made up of the 1st and 6th Corps and would be commanded by Major General William Franklin. The 39-year-old Franklin had graduated first in the West Point class of 1843, but his performance as 6th Corps commander on the peninsula and at Antietam had been unspectacular. As a McClellan loyalist, Franklin, perhaps undeservedly, had been on the receiving end of John Pope's wrath after the disaster at Second Bull Run. Pope accused Franklin and another McClellan loyalist, 5th Corps Commander Fitzjohn Porter, of undermining his efforts to defeat Robert E. Lee. Franklin escaped formal censure, but Porter was removed from command and subsequently dismissed from the army after a court-martial. Porter's fate and Little Mac's removal from command served notice to Franklin that he better tread carefully and mind his P's and Q's from now on. At any rate, in the left Grand Division, commanding the First Corps under Franklin would be John Reynolds, while Baldy Smith would lead the Sixth Corps. The Center Grand Division consisted of the Third and Fifth Corps and would be commanded by Major General Joseph Hooker. Hooker turned 38 on November 13th, and he was just returning to the Army after being wounded at Antietam. 
Hooker got his nickname "Fighting Joe" on the peninsula, supposedly due to a reporter's typographical error, but he nevertheless proved himself an aggressive division and corps commander. Hooker's intense ambition and his dissatisfaction with McClellan led him to more or less openly lobby for Little Mac's job while he was in Washington, recovering from his Antietam wound. But Hooker had a reputation for drinking, womanizing, and gambling, and that, along with his unbridled ambition, was apparently enough to cause Lincoln to pass him over in favor of the more acceptable and unambitious Burnside. In any case, in the Center Grand Division, commanding the Third Corps under Hooker would be George Stoneman, while the Fifth Corps would be led by Daniel Butterfield. Each Grand Division also had a cavalry command attached to it. Brigadier General Alfred Pleasanton commanded the cavalry division assigned to Sumner, while Brigadier Generals George Bayard and William Averill led the cavalry brigades assigned to Franklin and Hooker, respectively. All of these organizational changes, including the formation of a Grand Reserve Division to be commanded by Franz Siegel, were immediately approved by Halleck. And when all was said and done, the Army of the Potomac would muster about one hundred and twenty thousand men for the upcoming campaign. Burnside knew that everything depended on speed, and in that regard, the start of the new campaign was extremely encouraging. Sumner's right grand division led the way, setting off from the Warrenton area at dawn on November fifteenth and moving fast. Just after dark, two days later, his advance elements marched into the town of Falmouth, situated on the north bank of the Rappahannock. A little more than a mile upstream from Fredericksburg, Sumner had started out a day ahead of the other two Grand Divisions. Consequently, while Sumner set up shop at Falmouth, Hooker's Center Grand Division halted at Hartwood Church, six miles to the northwest, while Franklin's Left Grand Division marched to Stafford Courthouse, about ten miles to the northeast of Falmouth. Robert E. Lee knew something was afoot, but he couldn't decide just what it was. Lee had a reputation for being able to divine an opposing commander's intentions, but then George McClellan had been extremely predictable. In fact, Lee lamented Little Mac's departure, telling Longstreet, quote, "We always understood each other so well. I fear they may continue to make these changes till they find someone whom I don't understand." It was beginning to look as if Ambrose Burnside might be such an opponent. Lee learned of Sumner's departure from Warrenton on November fifteenth, but was uncertain what it signified. The Confederate commander's confusion, compounded by fragmentary and false intelligence reports, lasted for several days. Meanwhile, the Army of the Potomac was stealing a march on the rebels. It was a stunning change from the McClellan days. As a correspondent for the New York Tribune wrote on November eighteenth, officers accustomed to believe that a great command cannot move more than six miles a day, and adapted to our old method of waiting a month for the execution of an order to advance, rub their eyes in astonishment. 
We have marched from Warrington forty miles in two days and a half. Burnside seemed to be justifying the trust placed in him. In command for less than two weeks, he had formulated a new plan of campaign, reorganized the army, and commenced a swift march. And now his troops stood poised at their first objective. Better yet, Fredericksburg was held by just a corporal's guard of Confederate infantry, a handful of rebel cavalry, and a single battery of artillery. Longstreet's corps was still over thirty miles away at Culpeper, while Stonewall Jackson's corps remained out in the Shenandoah Valley. All Burnside had to do was get his forces across the Rappahannock quickly, and Fredericksburg and the road south to Richmond would be his. The ingredients for a major federal triumph were all there. Well, except for one ingredient. Pontoons. You see, there was no bridge at Fredericksburg or anywhere nearby for the army to use to cross the river, so Burnside had asked for enough pontoons to be forwarded to the army so that he could build several floating bridges across the Rappahannock. And therein lay the rub, because the army had reached the river, but the pontoons were nowhere to be found. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is "The Battle of Fredericksburg: We Cannot Escape History" by James K. Bryant. Yep,、uh, this is another book in the History Press's Civil War Sesquicentennial series, and like other books in that series that we recommended, this one is also a good introduction, in this instance, to Fredericksburg. And we would suggest it for those who don't want to jump right into the deep end of the pool、uh, with a couple of the more in-depth and detailed studies of the campaign and battle.、Um, yeah. So all that's to say that the Battle of Fredericksburg by Bryant is a good way to get yourself oriented to what's going on. Don't forget, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Okay,、um, so I wanted to say thanks to everyone who wished me well as far as my recovery from the flu,、uh, and that recovery took an astonishingly long time, since the flu, or at least the version I came down with, was just as bad as advertised. Uh, thankfully, though, Tracy, who did get the flu shot, seems to have dodged the bullet. Knock on wood.、Um, I did not get the flu shot, although it's a pretty safe bet that I'll be getting it from now on. Anyway, thanks for your thoughts and prayers; they were much appreciated. And thanks to all of you for your patience waiting for a new episode.、Uh, besides this show. We just yesterday released members episode number sixty-five, so the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade can check that out. The new, newest members being Dusty, Michael, Catherine, Jeremy, and Rodney. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and a big thank you also to Trent and Jeremy for their very generous donations to the podcast recently. 
We also wanted to give a shout out to Kent for helping us pick up some back issues of the Gettysburg Magazine that we needed. Okay, uh, so a lot of people to thank after being off the last couple of weeks. And if we missed anyone, you have our sincerest apologies. All right, uh, that should be it for this show, though. So last but not least, we'll say thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we talk about pontoons. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.